Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural Unboxing no, Judaism podcast. Uh, my name is Rabbi Ari Wolby, and I have the great privilege of sitting with Rabbi Yaakov Nagel. Rabbi Yaakov Nagel is a celebrated Torah scholar, uh, the uh, educator of the Dafyemi in Houston, and uh, the Daily Folio of Talmud Study in Houston, now uh, in the third cycle, yes. uh, going through the entire Talmud. Uh, now you give two shiurim a day. Correct. Right. So it's really, really remarkable and uh, really a great privilege to sit here uh, in the Torch Studios with Rabbi Nagel. It's an honor. So we wanted to embark on a new podcast to dedicate time and focus on the essential topics of Judaism. If someone was to ask you, what is Judaism? That's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to take Judaism and try to unbox it over the coming uh, uh, sessions, sessions uh, through our, our discussions and hopefully uh, come up with some clarity and understanding as to what is the essence of Judaism. So as we discussed previously, we're going to talk about... Uh, we'll break it down by topic and we'll focus on one topic at a time. If it's something that takes longer, maybe we'll do it over two sessions, we'll play it by ear. And uh, that's and we we have uh, an entire Torah that it says Aruka keeretz midor miniyam. The Torah is so uh, so expansive and so deep that there's no limit of topics. There's no limit of of, of areas of conversation and things to focus on. So we wanted to begin uh, with the idea of Mesora. So let's just define the word Mesora is pr- most commonly defined as tradition, which means that our understanding of Judaism in general is not something that we make up as we go, that we work with as we feel, but there's a tradition. It's passed down from generation to generation, going way back all the way to Moses at at, uh, Mount Sinai, straight from God. That's our belief system. And the question is, what, what does that mean? And uh, and why is that so important? That's the that's what I would say. It's a, is the question we want to deal with. Okay. Right. So the, the real question, as as you're saying it, is what does it make a difference if the Torah was the same Torah given to Moshe at, at Mount Sinai, or whether or not it's just a uh, a uh, you know there's this this theory that some people have come up with called the documentary theory, mm-hmm. which is basically in a very uh, abridged understanding of it uh an abridged uh it's basically that it's a document that over the years uh, some rabbis expanded on it and uh and uh and sort of like a google docs yeah that there's a few collaborators everyone puts in their own two cents and that's how it develops that's is that, that, that right that's exactly the what, what what it and and they run with this and they run with this and sadly many people un uneducated and unskilled in in jewish uh wisdom don't understand that that's heresy and, and falsehood on its on its face. Uh, everything we have in Judaism is based on a direct link to a source. So you know, I, I, it's funny because it's obvious that these people never study Talmud. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> because yeah. you you can't go through a single line in Talmud just stating an idea without having a source for it. And every concept uh, that we're faced with that is the classic question is okay well from where do we know this 
and we're looking to the source, and we're always trying to, that's what the Talmud is really all about. If I would give an introduction to Talmud, it, the goal of the Talmud is to take the information that we do, the, the concepts that we're familiar with, and find the source. And thereby, once we get from, from the, draw that line back to its source, that, that clarifies to us the details, the nuances, the understandings, the depths behind it. And that's the goal of the Talmud, which is to compare to the different sources, to the different ideas, and see really where's the source for this concept that we are familiar with in our back, in our practice, and then thereby understand the nuance and the depth of the halacha, the depth of the law. And that's what, uh, that's what basically primarily what the Talmud deals with. So if we go back to the first Mishnah in Ethics of Our Fathers, the first Mishnah begins with Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moshe received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And you wonder, there's so many other things that the, that the Mishnah of Ethics of Our Fathers could have started with. But the first thing that we touch on is authenticity. The most important value in Judaism is truth. We want to know that everything is authentic because if it isn't authentic, throw the whole Torah out. Why are we bound to it? Well, right. It has to come from, from, from an exact source that we can identify, that we can track down. And there are a multitude of proofs to the uh, authenticity of the Torah and to the veracity of the Torah because of that tradition. Be- not, not tradition. You know, it's like I, I, I say this many times in our classes that the worst destruction of American Jewry was the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Right. Tradition. Mm. Tradition. Because I I can't even tell you how many people tell me, oh, we do that. That's just tradition. No, we don't do anything because of tradition. The only reason we do things is because there is an actual mandate in the Torah that is sourced in the oral Torah written in the sourced in the written Torah all the way back to Moses at Mount Sinai. So to, to, for, for someone to think that it's just tradition. Right. It's a bad, it's a it, bad translation. It's a of terrible, the, terrible. It translation. does so much injustice to the, to the, to the, to the essence of Judaism because we're not about tradition. We don't just do things. Oh, why do we do it? I have no idea. So it's just tradition. No, no, no. We don't do things because of tradition. Listen, I'm not going to deny there are people that is their connection. They never thought much about it. They didn't do their own research. And you ask them, so why do you do this? And they say, well, that's what my father did. And I guess that's what his father did. And that's why we're doing it. And if they did it, it must be the right thing. And therefore, I'm going to do it because it exactly. would be... Exactly. And we're not... And it would, be, it would be unfair to... It would be lack of appreciation to my father for not showing uh, respect to that. That's really a lot of people's connection. And it's a shame. Because it reminds they're... me of a terrible story. Yeah, I lived in a community once where there was no, there were three shuls that none of them had a minion. And me, I don't know if you know, but I have several degrees in in mathematics. I really don't, but but I, I'm such a genius that I was able to figure <laughs> out that if I took the six people from this shul and the seven people from that shul and the nine people from that shul, we'd have a big, robust minion. So I approached one of the uh, leading congregants of one of the one of the synagogues, and I said, "You know, I came up with this brilliant idea. It's like it's re- really earth shattering. You know, if we put everyone together, we would have a great minion." And he looks at me. and He says, "Are you kidding me? If I step foot into that synagogue, my father would turn over in his grave." 
I said, really? <laughs> to such a degree? I said, can you explain to me why? He says, I have no idea. I have no tradition. idea why, but it's tradition, <laughs> right? That's My father didn't walk into that synagogue, so I don't walk into that synagogue. And it is such a terrible, right. catastrophic uh, uh, you know, reality. And it's, it's sad because many communities have never been able to get over those little uh, silly uh, disputes of, of, of years past. Right. There's and, an expression in the Talmud that, that the whole dispute and everything else, they're all dead <laughs> by now. Like the reason for it and why and everyone involved is all long gone. They're, they're pushing daisies. And yet we're still standing strong by the old fights. And that's a shame. That's really a big shame. And again, so like we, the, the idea that we want to convey here is tradition does not, is not the correct word. It is passed down. Misor means to, it's the handing of a baton, but it's not just from my father. It's from God to Moses, straight to us. So, you know, many times in our classes, we would pull out this uh, nifty uh, uh, pyramid where it shows a clear tra- transmission of the Torah given from God giving it to Moses at Mount Sinai all the way down to the Torah that we have today. And on the other side, we have the unbroken chain from God dates of rabbi to student, rabbi to student, rabbi to student. And it's an amazing thing is that we don't study Torah from a book. We study Torah from teachers. Directly. From teachers. Right? The amazing thing is, is that people say, well, why don't you give a guess? Like, you know, how many stops along the way do you think? It's been, and people say, it must be thousands, I don't know, hundreds, you know, thousands. That's what most people would guess. What is it? 131 generations. We are 131 generations. Anyone who studies with the rabbis at You Torch listening here. Are 131. Our number 131, going back to going Moses. Going all the way back from Moses and Mount Sinai. And it's that's rabbi, student, rabbi. It's not student. generation. It's student. It's, it's teacher rabbi, to student. Teacher to student. Right. Direct, face-to-face. That's what it is. And it's an amazing thing that in order for someone to be ordained as a rabbi, you don't go on some uh, online program and become an an ordained rabbi. You have to have a rebbe, a teacher, who passes that Torah on to you and says, I approve for you after repeating to me the Torah that you learned, that you indeed incorporate the wisdom of the Torah and you represent its morals and ethics appropriately. And now... I ordain you as a rabbi. So there you go. It's pretty <laughs> so, amazing. No, it really is. It's remarkable. And, and, and what many people don't understand, and I've heard this so many times, such a mistake, where people assume that the laws of the Torah or the laws of, written down in halacha by the Rambam or by Shulchan Aruch, oh, it's just a bunch of rabbis made it up. Or, or I heard people say, eh, it's just Midrash. Or it's like, mm. without understanding that there is no authentic Torah without it being sourced. And the halacha, the way the halacha came about was where Rambam learned through all of the Torah, all of the prophets, all of the writings. He learned through all of the Mishnah. He learned through all of the Talmud and all of the commentaries and everything. Then with the, uh, with putting it all together, was able to assemble the 14 books of the, the Yad HaChazakah, the, the, the Mishnah Torah, right? He put it together 
And that is what we have as halacha. That's the bedrock of halacha. It's after all of those discussions. And what many people don't understand is they think it's just a bunch of rabbis who were bored or trying to keep their their congregants busy that they came up with these laws uh, that they're just like, oh, why not? Let's just do it. The more one studies Talmud, really, the more one recognizes the brilliance, and it's interesting, it, not the, the because I want to clarify something. Yes, it's true that everything needs to be sourced, but there is also a, an entire area of law that's called rabbinic law, where the rabbis have an, a Torah obligation to create boundaries to help people keep the Torah better. That's called rabbinic law, and it's a, that in my sense, is one of the best areas to study, to recognize the brilliance of the rabbis of the Talmud because their insight into human nature and their insight into understanding people and how people work and what makes people tick is fascinating. And there's sections of Talmud that are focused basically only on rabbinic law. We just finished recently Masechet uh, Erevin, which is a completely rabbinic invention. It goes back to King Solomon, in fact. But it wasn't written in the Torah, but it was created, and it creates, it's such a difficult section. We're very proud, actually celebrating tonight in the restaurant. We're going to celebrate the Siam tonight because it was pretty, it was, it's a big deal. It was very difficult. We studied it. But that's really what, what it is. It's the, so like, it's more than just the, you know, the five books of Moses as it's written. There's, um, there's a job of the rabbis to actually help us keep the keep the Torah law. And I think that's a very important part of what it means, Misora. I, I think this, the, first is congratulations on the yeah. Siyum, on the, con- on the conclusion of this tractate of Talmud. And I also want to congratulate my son. Shlomo coming? My Shlomo, he'll Send be him. there. Yes, okay, yes, good. absolutely. Uh, I reserved his dinner uh, okay. uh, order. And um, it, it really is a, a remarkable accomplishment to even finish one page of Talmud, let alone one chapter of Talmud or an entire tractate. But Eruvin is one of the more complicated, the more sophisticated uh, 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 areas of Talmud. But even then, the Talmud still finds the proper sources in the Tanakh, in the Torah, in the written Torah for all of those rabbinic meanings, even then the rabbis can't fabricate it out of thin air. It still has uh, hints, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that are alluded to in the Torah to to the ideas that are the rabbinic laws. So, and, you know, we have, I believe it's seven laws that are completely rabbinic in, 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 in uh, like washing hands. Right, wash our washing of hands uh, in the morning is a total rabbin, rabbinic law, but it's based on other areas of the Torah where there is obligations to. So the rabbis say, if you have this obligation here, we can apply it as well over here, um, and you have this many times in law. Well, we also have the upcoming holiday of Hanukkah, which is a very, um, which was celebrating an event of the importance. I think that's really true. What it is, it's celebrating our connection to the Masorah. And how important it is to us. And we put ourselves on the line to fight for it. And I think that's really what this upcoming celebration, people don't recognize it. It's always funny to me how um, secular Jews somehow love Hanukkah. It's it's such a great holiday. If they understood what it was, it's celebrating the fact that we 
are not assimilating. That's what it's celebrating. It's an amazing thing. They would only know. Okay. So it's very interesting. You know, when I was in yeshiva, you know, many yeshivas have vacation for Shabbos Hanukkah, the Shabbos of Hanukkah. And my yeshiva had the custom not to do that because they said the whole purpose of Hanukkah was to strengthen our connection with Torah. Why would we be off we from take yeshiva? Off. Exactly. We've got to be take a different Shabbos, the Shabbos before, Learn the extra. Shabbos after, exactly. <laughs> but on Hanukkah itself is such an auspicious time. It's such a special opportunity to to reinvigorate that connection with the Almighty and His Torah. It's interesting that in the prayer that we add for Hanukkah, we say, Part of their objective was to make, make us forget. forget our Torah, not that we shouldn't, uh, observe the laws, but rather we should not be able to study with our rabbis. They understood that the, the the source of our strength as Jews is our relationship with our with our heritage, right. is our relationship with our rabbis. And the more we have that solid connection between us and our teachers, the more the, it's even more than that. Is that it, it's what Hanukkah essentially is teaching us is reminding us that we're a link in the chain, and that. Our Torah is the link that leads back 131 generations of rabbi and students. And what we teach our students and our children, that it's also a link in the chain requiring us to make sure that our chain is as strong as possible so that we can help that next generation connect with that chain. And so that they should have that excitement, that fervor, that enriched feeling of connection so that they can pass that chain on to the next generation. I was thinking, it just reminded me of that, uh, the importance of this, this idea. One of the, the stories that the Talmud brings down, and this is also a big part of Talmud, is the stories that they bring down. And one of them is um, about during this very time when the Greeks were making these decrees against uh, many aspects of Jewish practice. So one of them was that one would not be allowed to ordain um, a, a rabbi. And this was during that time that a, there was a certain rabbi that, that felt that if he didn't ordain the next generation of rabbis, then it's going to be lost the chain. And because of that, he re- literally gave up his life. And there was they, they were so over the top in terms of what their decree was. They said the city of where the rabbi ordains is going to be completely decimated. And that's so we, this rabbi figured out a way, just like, well, what he's going to do is going to be exactly in between the two cities and he's going to ordain there. And therefore, each city is like, what? Well, you can't say our city because maybe it's closer to the other city. And therefore, it would, and he ordained five and he blocked the way that they were able to escape and they found out about it. But he risked, he gave up his life to ordain the next generation of rabbis. But so you see how serious this is. And it's amazing. That fight may not be in the open anymore, but certainly that's something that we need to recognize. The fact that these people gave up their lives for this shows how serious a matter it is. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's something that is crucial. And that's the... You know, there's an amazing piece of Talmud that I've always been intrigued with. It says that a father who learns with his son is like the Torah that Moses was learning with God at Mount Sinai. A father learning with the son, why would it have any similarity to the Almighty teaching the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai, to the Jewish people? 
It's like it's like they're standing there at the mountain and receiving the Torah from God Himself when a child learns with his father. I think the idea is exactly what we're saying, that the the importance of passing a direct transmission of Torah, which is unbroken, a chain that is direct from a source, right? I think it's so critically important for us to understand that in Judaism, we can't have Judaism as a book on a shelf, like we started off with. We cannot have Judaism. You need to unbox it. You you need to (laughs) unbox it. It needs to be coming from a living source. What's that living source? That's Masorah. That is the tradition of of transmission that comes from generation to generation. I just want to point out one other thing that I think is one of the crucial parts people don't recognize when it comes to Masorah. The reason why it needs you can't be just from a book or just from online, which is I think how most people are learning nowadays. Let me just Google that and I'll and I'll know everything. It doesn't really work that way. It comes from a direct interaction with a teacher who had a direct interaction with his teacher. And the reason why is because the primary way that that information is conveyed is not through information. As, as that's taught, that's told from the teacher to the student. It's from the question that the student asks to the teacher to open up to a deeper discussion. And that's really what I think is very crucial and why, we, why it's so important of having that direct teacher that you have an interaction with. That's what you're actually learning the most because then it's alive. You're questioning, it's, you're engaged. I want to know. This is something that I'm trying to understand Explain it to me. And then when you hear the answer, that makes it alive. And that's really why it's such a, it's a living chain more than just, it's not just a chain. It's a, it's a living chain. You know, the, the Mishnah says that, uh, I learn more from my students than I learn from my teachers. Because that's exactly the idea is when you have a student who challenges your logic, who challenges your precepts. And, and forces us to make it even sharper understanding, a sharper clarity in the teachings that we teach. It's not just like, here's a piece of information, let's let, you know, figure it out. No, 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 no. We have to have a source for it. So now I want to address the idea of the Torah being authenticated. Mm-hmm. Right? How do we know that the Torah we have today is the exact same Torah that was given to Moshe at Mount Sinai? So before Moses is passing, the last day of his life, the Torah in the, at the end of Deuteronomy says that uh, Moshe wrote the Torah, 13 copies, one for each of the tribes and one that was placed inside the ark in the tabernacle. So that same Torah given to each one of the tribes is the exact same Torah that we have today in every single synagogue around the globe. And how do we know that the Torah that we learn here today at the Torch Center is the exact same Torah that was given to Moshe at Mount Sinai. Right. So it's fascinating, the system, I think, uh, how it was set up. We have a public reading every week of a section of the Torah that's done in front of everybody. And one of the favorite things that most people are is if the person reading makes a mistake to say, ah, ah, you read it wrong and correct him. And isn't that an amazing thing? And then he says, oh, he corrects it to show that the text that he has in front of him says it the way we have, and we're verifying it every time. That's why 
as the generations go, every set of Torah is identical. It's actually interesting because there's actually, I think, a dispute regarding one letter, whether it's written with an Aleph or a He. The word Daka. Some spell some have the tradition spelled with a, some have with an olive. The reason why that can happen is because we're only testing it phonetically. <laughs> so it's because we're listening. So you wouldn't know if the right way is with an olive, because phonetically it sounds exactly the same. But to me, that's why the Torah is the same exact Torah as was written at Har Sinai and given passed down to us. One of the ways that we verify that is by going through the Torah year in, year out. And every new Torah that's read from is copied from the, uh, an, the existing, an so. existing Torah. And there can be mistakes, but we're correcting for that, which is an amazing system. Right. You know, there's a, there's a famous mistake. I'm sure many people listening to the, this podcast may have heard this myth that Jews have horns. Right. Why do they? Why, why, where did this come from? So the Torah tells us that when Moshe was descending from the mount from Mount Sinai, when he was descending the mountain, it says that his face was glowing. And Karan or Panov. Karan or Panov, right? So his his face was glowing; it was beaming. But if you read it without the proper vowelization, it it, it can also be read as and his face had a horn, right? A Karen is a horn. It's the same letters but with different vowels. Right? So if someone is ignorant and doesn't understand the proper way to pronounce the word, it can come up with the wrong understanding. Obviously, last I checked, we don't have horns. It's fascinating. But- I want you to know, it was just interesting. Just today, I was, I, I was reminded of the story when I was a young boy. We had a neighbor who was not Jewish, and we were very friendly. We would play all the time. And after a while, he said, can you show me your horns? I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it. They actually he actually was taught by his parents something that all Jews have horns. Of course, we're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how they got to that conclusion, but either way, it's obviously um, uh, one of those mistakes by not knowing how to read the Torah, not having a proper, authentic uh, uh, method of understanding it. Now, we also see a a a public revelation that was given to the Jewish people where you don't have any such experience with any other religion. You know, Muhammad claims that he had a dream where God spoke to him and said, the Jewish people are no longer the chosen people. I'm now giving you, ordaining you with the right to be the chosen people. And if you don't believe him, he'll kill you. (laughs) So it was an individual who had this revelation and you have to believe it because otherwise you're considered an infidel and you have every right, they have every right to... They lose to, all, uh, they, they forfeit their lives. Basically. Exactly. Christianity is a similar thing. Christianity has murdered more Jews than any other people on earth, right? Millions and millions of Jews have been slaughtered by Christians because we didn't undertake accept or, or their, accept their, uh, their story of their quote-unquote God. Right and and also that was an individual's revelation, but then you look at the Jewish people at Mount Sinai and there's no story of it being a revelation to an individual. On the contrary, it is a public revelation to the entire people. Everybody standing around the foot of Mount Sinai. We're talking about an 
estimated two, 3.2 million Jews standing at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the exact same revelation. One person, the person standing next to him, the person standing next to him, and the person on the other side of the mountain all had the exact same revelation and experience where this was in public. When you write down that public uh, uh that that's how it happened. That that's how it happened. It's undisputed because we were all there. It's like if I were to tell you, Rabbi, don't you remember when we went from Katy and we went to Austin, right? Mm-hmm. And we went through the uh, the the Lake Lake Travis and the water split. And you look at me, you say something's wrong with this guy because we were, <laughs> we were never in Katy together and we never went to Austin. It would be nice to, but we never did that. So you take it to the local recycling bin and you throw out that book. And especially if you have 613 commandments that are obligating us to, 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 to dedicate our lives, right? If such an essential part of the story is fabricated, you'd imagine that the rest of it would be thrown out as well. And yet we have a tradition that is now 3,300 years running, every single generation reaffirming their commitment, their commitment, their, their, their approval. Yes, this is indeed what happened to our ancestors. And why? Because I heard it from my rabbi who heard it from his rabbi, from my father who heard it from his father, all the way back generation to generation. And a public revelation cannot be faked. And a private individual revelation can. Plus, it doesn't make any sense anyway, because if two brothers are fighting over an inheritance and one brother goes to the other brother and says, you know, it, I get the inheritance. Why, why do you get the inheritance? Because dad came to me in a dream. In a dream, right. And he told me that right. I deserve it. He says, well, you're an I idiot. Had, I had a better dream. <laughs> he says, you're an idiot, because if daddy wanted you to get it, he would come to me in the dream and he would tell me that I should give it to you. So it just doesn't make any sense that, that, that someone woke up one day with a dream. Just by the way, just for, for interesting note, um, sources say that by the time Muhammad died, there were over 400 versions of the Quran. Over 400 by the time he died. How many versions are there of the Torah? There's one. There's one. one version of the Torah. And in fact... Part of the authentication of a Torah scroll is that if it's added one letter or omitting one letter, it's it's disqualified. It's worth nothing if it's missing or has one extra letter. That's how far the authentication of the Torah goes. Just another interesting quick idea is that the Torah tells us that uh, we had, we experienced as a people, we experienced a splitting of the sea. We know we had the 10 plagues in Egypt, and then the Jewish people leave Egypt, the masses of Jewish people exiting the exodus, and we're go, we walk right into the Red Sea, and there's the splitting of the sea. And now many scientists will argue that and say, well, you know, there's scientific proof that the waters with winds coming in a certain way can split any body of water. So it's not really such a great miracle. So... Here is the one piece, and I always say that if you want to see Hashem, you have to go down to the last piece and then just see, like, well, there's no way to, to explain, to explain this. So let's understand one thing. The Torah tells us, yes, indeed, God split the sea. But the people walked on dry land. See, under the bedrock of the sea is wet. It's damp. It's moist. right? But when the Jewish people passed through, 
It was on dry land. On dry land. That the scientists can't explain. Right. Right? They can maybe split the water with winds coming a certain way, but they can't. And that is something that the Jewish people, when they receive their copy of the Torah at Mount Sinai from Moses, the day he dies, they look at it, they're like, it's exactly accurate. That is exactly what happened. Indeed, right? And that that's the way it gets authenticated is by the approval of all of those everyone. multitudes who were there. Of everyone who was there, right? Exactly. So we have an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, Torah. We have an amazing, authentic Torah that the essence of everything that we have in Judaism is about truth. In fact, when we talk about God, we say Hashem Elokechem Emet. The name of Hashem is truth. What we seek in Judaism is truth more than anything, which is why it's critical to have a direct link of us, the Torah that we learn, all the way up linking it to the Torah that Moses was given. The Jewish people were given at Mount Sinai directly from the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. So my dear friends, thank you for joining us on our inaugural podcast. Amazing. This was so nice. And we look forward to, uh, to hearing from you. You can email us at uh, podcast at torchweb.org. And we look Feel forward free to ask questions, please. If you have any questions, we look forward. We'll address if you have any topics you'd like it to discuss us to discuss in future podcasts. We will happily uh, discuss them. And um, till next time, Shalom from Texas. Amazing. Thank you.